Hey everyone, this is Chad. I am your host of Mission Daily. And in this week, we're doing another theme week. So in our theme weeks, we pick one topic, one subject that is crucial to helping you live a better, healthier, wealthier, and wiser life. In this week, our focus is mindset. Mindset determines our fortunes in many different ways. And we're kicking off this week with a special guest who is the world's foremost researcher of mindset, positivity, happiness, and all of this guy's research is backed up by science. This is one of my favorite authors, and he needs no introduction, but I'll do it anyways. Sean Acor, he has spent 12 years at Harvard University. He has several TED Talks out. He's worked with companies like Google, Facebook, the NBA, the Dalai Lama Center, among others. And he is a master about developing an unbeatable and an unstoppable mindset. He's a New York Times bestselling author, and I could go on, but instead, let's jump into today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Mission Daily. I'm joined today by one of my favorite authors. Sean, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And I guess author is, uh, there is obviously way more to the work you do and your expertise but when you meet somebody, whether it's at a party or maybe at the gym or something, how do you describe what you do if they ask? Um, I tell them I'm a happiness researcher. So I've been studying what creates happiness, first from the divinity school, studying Christian and Buddhist ethics and looking at how your belief systems about the world change your pursuit of happiness. And now as a, a psychology researcher, looking to see if we can quantify if somebody's becoming happier or if they're becoming more optimistic and how that spreads throughout a school or throughout a company. I love that. So you mentioned the Divinity School. Is that Harvard's Divinity School or what's where's that based at? Yeah, I was at Harvard Divinity School. Grew up Christian. I grew up in Waco, Texas. And so hadn't seen basically anything aside from Christianity. So when I was up in Boston, I was suddenly exposed to a lot of different worldviews. And I wanted to see what motivated people all over the globe to what, what gets them to wake up in the morning? What, what makes them give? What makes them forgive? So I was trying to study two major traditions, trying to figure out how your beliefs shape your actions in your life, which led directly to the psychology work I was doing, trying to understand how your mindset shapes your ability to create a better world. It's very cool. So you had your beginnings and upbringings in a religion that's typically associated with the West. And then you, it sounds like you kind of discovered more of the traditions from the East. Uh, what was that process like? And what did you learn when you began to blend some of those philosophies together? That's a great question. Actually, I don't get that question very often. It's one of my favorite ones. A lot of uh, the Christian faith that I grew up with was based upon the idea that if you believe something, then all these other cascading changes will happen within your life. What I loved about Buddhism was that it was focused upon the discipline part, the practical application. And in fact, I feel like the more I learned about Buddhism, the more Christian I could become because I felt like what it was teaching you were the skill sets necessary to deepen your faith or deepen a change to your behavior or to your belief systems about the world, which paralleled so much of the work that I do in psychology because what I research now are what are the small changes somebody can make in their life that if they created a discipline about it, 
if they were able to consistently make these changes, how would that change their belief system? So now I kind of feel like I get the best of both worlds where we see the impact of mindset and belief, but also that mindset and belief is bolstered and defended by the daily changes, the daily habits we're making, whether that's meditation or gratitude or yoga or any of these positive daily habits that actually impact our behavior, which is important because if you make a mindset shift without a behavioral shift, like if you think, I just choose happiness, it doesn't last for very long. Um, right. In the same way, if you try to make a diet change, you change your behavior without your mindset, it doesn't last very long either. I'm finding that the real change that occurs in people's lives when we do this research is when they make a mindset shift and a behavioral shift at the same time. So how do people go about getting started with this? And I think many people who are listening uh, have practiced or really tried to maintain a positive mindset for as long as humanly possible, maybe, um, but they find it hard to hold on to. And you alluded to some ideas there with behavioral change and habits, but what would you recommend for somebody that's really struggling with the idea of, you know, how do I hold on to this positive mindset? How do I stay in a state of happiness? So maybe I should start um, by saying that I got into this while I was shifting from the divinity school, but also in a period of more than two years of depression I was going through. So uh, I applied to Harvard on a dare from Waco. I wasn't valedictorian. I didn't get perfect SAT scores. I was a volunteer firefighter back in Waco. And when I got accepted, we couldn't afford it. But then three weeks later, I got a Navy ROTC scholarship that paid for the whole thing. So suddenly I found myself wow. with this experience, which was not even something I thought was remotely possible. And I felt so grateful to be there. And I, th I assumed everyone else would too. But when I looked around the students, and actually when I later researched them, we found that 80% of the students at Harvard were going through depression. And 10% of them contemplated suicide at some time during their four years. at this incredible privilege and opportunity. So it, it started me on this journey of trying to figure out what it is that causes people to find happiness. Because it wasn't the external world that was working. While I was doing this, I actually spent eight years while I was teaching and researching there, living in the freshman dorms with the students, counseling 30 freshmen a year through the first year of being there. And while I was doing that, I actually went through depression myself. It happened for a lot of reasons. But going through it up until that point, I thought I was really good at checking off individual metrics in my life. So I thought... If I could do the right things on my own, I could solve this problem. The reason I feel like that background's important, coming back to your question, is that it wasn't that I was happy my whole life and then wanted to research how great happiness <laughs> makes you. Sure. What I got interested in was this idea that, that change is radically possible. I think for most of us, as we're trying to create happiness like you're describing, we've been told actually for five decades from research that you are just your genes and your environment. You're whatever you, pre, whatever you were born with that predisposes you to intelligence and creativity and athleticism and obesity and depression. And you're whatever happens to you at school, whatever happens to you at work, whatever happens to you on a battlefield. And what we're finding is that in this research, the thing that I think is stunning about this research and why I've been hooked on it ever since is that continually we found a different pattern. Genes and environment, set the initial baseline for happiness. And in science, we only study the average usually. And the average person doesn't fight their genes and their environment. So we found, yeah, genes and environment predicted almost everything. But then if you go back into the data and you look at people that change their habits, they make a addition to their day where they 
scan the world for three new things that they're grateful for every day for 21 days in a row. They insert an exercise regime. They meditate for a few minutes a day. They do random acts of kindness and create a pattern out of it. They journal about a positive experience for two minutes a day. And I'm happy to go back through some of those. But what we found is that if you do those positive habits, it breaks the tyranny of genes and environment over your levels of happiness. And people who are starting out as genetic pessimists or in some of the worst environments in the world were actually becoming low-level optimists three weeks later. Six months later, they were testing as low to moderate level of optimists. We were seeing this with soldiers coming back from combat service. We were seeing this with the students. I'm working with all the schools in Flint, Michigan right now in the midst of cyclical poverty and a water crisis uh, with farmers that lost their lands in Zimbabwe. We've been seeing with bankers who were getting their bonuses with NFL stars who thought they'd be happy and then weren't. What we're finding continually is that small positive habit changes have dramatic changes to the way your brain processes the world. And we can get somebody with genes for pessimism to actually turn into a lifelong optimist if they can create some of these changes. So that's what I would say is that if we want to find greater levels of happiness, we can't just say, I choose happiness. We have to actually create some of these practices. For example, that gratitude one, scanning the world for three new things you're grateful for each day sounds extraordinarily small. <clears throat> That's why I research it. But what we found is that if you test as a pessimist, you always test as a pessimist. That's how we know our metrics work. But when people tested as a pessimist and then for th 21 days in a row, scanned for three new things that they were grateful for. Even some of the homeless populations we were working with, 21 days later, they're testing as low-level optimists, which shouldn't be happening, right? That's one of the genetic ones we can't touch. You're born a pessimist, you die a pessimist, that's the end of the story. And it turns out that wasn't the story at all. A 45-second disruptor in somebody's life could actually raise their levels of optimism, which yielded greater levels of happiness, which then cascaded into improving every single business and educational outcome we knew how to test for. So why I think this research is exciting is that small changes could actually make happiness an easier choice for us. This is fascinating. And you're testing so many different types of populations and people who have what we would think of as you know very diverse experiences. But it sounds like you're, you're finding a uh, basically a common protocol for moving towards greater states of hopefulness and optimism. When you look back at your life when you were just getting started. Uh, I want to take it back for a second to, you mentioned you were a volunteer firefighter. What really inspired you to make that commitment or begin to do that? Because, you know, putting your own skin in the game and taking a risk for others is, uh, you know, something I think that should be commended and explored. So what got you started there? I don't know what it, you know, I think I became a volunteer firefighter, honestly, because I watched the movie Backdraft. And <laughs> wanted, I love it. That's a great reason, though. <laughs> to, yeah. I it was an altruistic reason. I know that with your military service that you've put your life on the line to protect other people. And I think that that's so crucial for so many different reasons. So rather than talk about my experience on that, I'd, I'd rather lift up what you're doing because, or have been doing, because... I had a new book up, a book come out um, last year that kind of changed the way I had been studying happiness for the past decade. Up to that point, I've been looking at how if you change your individual habits, your individual levels of happiness will rise and then you will become more successful. What we're finding is that that's actually small potential. When we treat happiness like a self-help idea or mm -hmm. if we treat happiness like an individual sport, we miss out on the majority of it and there's a cap on there's a ceiling effect that occurs on your happiness unless eventually it's about other people. 
protecting right. other people, protecting the environment for other people, making sure that you're lifting other people up as a mentor or as a leader. That's where we actually access the greatest amount of our long-term levels of happiness. Um, I've been finding it myself, you know, as I now mentor a couple people in their own speaking, I used to feel so good if I got a standing ovation after a talk, so much validation. Now, I would much rather one of the people that I'm mentoring get a standing ovation because I feel like my cup is full. I can't get any more return on my happiness from that, but I can when I see my son do well or one of the people that I'm mentoring do well or when I see one of these schools who we're working with in impoverished areas do well, which is why I think we need an interconnected pursuit of happiness. And I was hoping to tell you about two studies that I think are, are, are amazing that, that link directly to this, sure. one of which we just found two years ago, two researchers in, in Virginia found that if you look at a hill, you need to climb in front of you by yourself, which is how we normally test people. Uh, they look, if you view that mountain by yourself, your brain perceives a hill that is 10 to 20% steeper than a mountain of the exact same height you perceive while standing next to a friend who's going to climb it with you. So, wow. the yeah, the inclusion of another person changes your perception of the challenges in front of you. I always thought if I saw a hill, that's how tall it is. That's not how the human brain works at all. Our perception about the world is literally changing whether or not we think we're alone in this process or with other people, which led to the other study. It's actually initially from 1935, this researcher found some fireflies in Southeast Indonesia that for some reason would light up and go dark as a community, like they didn't light up and go dark randomly and individually, the whole community would light up and go dark, millions of these bugs all at once. No one believed him at the time. He actually lost his job when he wrote a scientific paper about it because they assumed a survival of the fittest world. So why would you light up when your competition's lit up? Two researchers at MIT just found out that when lightning bugs light up individually, their success rate at night at reproduction is 3%. When they light up as an interconnected community, the success rate goes from 3% to 82% per bug in the system. So it's not like one bug's doing really well. <laughs> like, like, keep going, guys, best night of my life. Like, the entire right. system is doing orders of magnitude better than we thought was possible, which is an indication, again, of why instead of trying to pursue our happiness and success alone, we need to be doing it with and for other people. Do you feel like the academic community is starting to shift from the Darwinism survival of the fittest to survival of the most symbiotic or the most collaborative? Where do you see that transition at and where would you say academia is at as a whole? Academia is slow, but you're right. It's changing. It's changing because we have big data now because um, we're not just looking at having you fill out an individual survey as a participant. We can now look at trends throughout the system. And you're right. I like how you described it as a symbiotic relationship there. What we're finding is not survival of the fittest, but survival of the best fit with the ecosystem around mm -hmm. you. Um, I get emails from parents that are like, we don't know where to send our son, like the, a big school, a prestigious school, a small school close to home. Um, I write back and say, happiness exists down every single one of those paths and not going to college if and only if you're able to find a fit with the ecosystem around you and express your strengths there. What we're finding is, I did a study at Harvard. I was looking to see, could I predict who's going to rise to the top in terms of success rates based upon any of these psychological metrics? So a freshman comes in, could I predict who's going to rise to the top? I, I did a study that took over a year. I had so many variables that kept crashing my computer. And at the end <laughs> of it, we couldn't find anything that was predictive of their long-term success rates, not familial income, not SAT scores, not hours slept, not number of clubs they're involved in. The, uh, 
Average number of romantic relationships was less than one on average. The average number of sexual partners was 0.5 sexual partners per Harvard student, which I only mentioned because we have no idea what that statistic even means. Scientific equivalent of second base, and it was useless information because none of it predicted anything. The only thing that was predictive was the last metric I put in, which is their social connection score. It's the breadth, huh. the depth, and meaning in your social relationship. That was it. Meanwhile, at the exact same time, Google was doing the exact same study out in the workforce. And what they found was that uh, they did this with 110,000 employees. They looked to see, could I see your individual strengths? And if we could create superstars around those and then put those superstars into certain teams when we hire, we could replicate superstar teams across the globe. And at the end of it, the head researcher said, we're Google, we're amazing at finding patterns. There is no pattern in the data. There is no pattern connecting the individual traits to the success rate of the team. The only thing that was predictive was the social co cohesion of the team. Did you feel like your, your voice was heard? Could you express your strengths? And did you like the people you're working with? Which is exactly what we're seeing with some of the sports teams I'm working with right now. You can put superstars onto a team, but they underperform without that social cohesion and injury rates actually rise. That's fascinating. So is that uh, Laszlo Block's research or which uh, study was that? Uh, yeah, so that's Project Aristotle at Google. And Laszlo Bach was doing a lot of that work there uh, before leaving Google. And so when they did this, they were able to, to take big data and find these trends that we saw with the lightning bugs and that we're seeing in the schools and that we're seeing across the board that we get this false idea that if we're going to be a creative genius, we have to do that alone. You know, Edison had, you know, I think hundreds of patents. I can't remember the actual number, hundreds of patents, but historians can't figure out any invention that he actually created himself. He was a genius. I'm not taking that right. away from him. He was a genius at getting people together to be creative. That's where his genius lay, not in coming up with ideas alone. And that's what we're trying to move away from, not only in terms of our success rates, but happiness as well. I mean, as people were trying to overcome anxiety or depression or post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, if you feel like you're alone in that process, those hills look 10 to 20% steeper than if we feel like we've got somebody that's moving over that hill with us, which is why when I got depressed at Harvard, the turning point was when I moved away from trying to solve this individually to opening up to my friends, my eight closest friends and family and telling them I've been depressed for two years. I really need your help. I don't know if I can overcome this. And the groundswell of support was amazing. They were calling me, emailing me, meeting up with me, which made that mountain drop by 10 to 20% of overcoming depression. But the other thing is I created a reciprocal bond. I wasn't just a one-way street friend. And now what got me out of bed in the morning wasn't, am I happy or not? What got me out of bed was I needed to meet up with one of my friends because I know how lonely she is, or I haven't left my room in five days, but I need to leave so my friend doesn't drink tonight. That's what I think builds up. I mean, I, I love giving your military background. I get so many companies that call me and they say, you know, we're terrified that we're going through so much stress right now. We're going to lose so many people as they're having to deal with all the stress to other companies. And then, you know, we studied the military and they onboard you, not with a beach vacation, they onboard you with boot camp, one of the most mm -hmm. stressful situations possible. But they teach you if you view that stress with the right lens and with other people, there's not just one person getting over the wall, it's a team going over the wall. You create meaningful narratives and social bonds. You talk about the rest of your life, as opposed to this idea that I'm trying to be successful alone in, in my pursuits or happy alone. Wow. There's definitely a lot there. A lot of it's very exciting. And the first thing I wanted to start with is when many people are listening to this, they might think, well, you know, what about authors? Great authors are, that's the exception. They're alone. They're isolated. 
Well, what's interesting is if you look at some of the most long-lasting and influential books, they're actually group efforts. And in many cases, the authors writing them would have someone there to take dictation, to bounce around ideas with. And then the longest lasting books in the world are actually a collection of people that are not even writing under their own name. Can you find any examples in your work of uh, lone geniuses basically outperforming? I have not. I'm sure there's got to be some cases of lone geniuses, but you're right. Sure. As an author myself, th- there's an entire village that's required to get that book out. And you can write a book, but no one will read it unless you have people selling it on the backside or sure. promoters or illustrators or editors on the backside or audiobook people or podcasts, right? Like it literally takes so many people for a book to become successful. But not only that, I, you know, I, I, I read a great book by one of my friends, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, uh, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, but she wrote a book called Big Mac. Magic. It was all about creativity. And she said, one of the things that, that we get a false idea of is not only that we have to do this individually, but that you have to suffer in order to create that, that the, the only people that can be creatives are the ones that are suffering the most, that are the darkest and the most brooding. And that's what we oftentimes think about intelligence. The smartest people are the most negative because they can really see what's going on in the world the easiest thing in the world for the brain to do is see threats in the world. That's the most Mm -hmm. primitive part of the brain. It takes no effort for the brain to do that. The rest of the brain that formed around it, the most sophisticated parts of the brain are the parts that have to be creative about what's positive in that moment to be able to create those positive changes. And if you think about all the people that that we think of that were going through very difficult, dark periods that were creative geniuses like a Van Gogh, Van Gogh didn't produce in his depressed periods, he produced in his manic periods. He produced when he believed his behavior matter. When you hit a low, you stop producing and you stop connecting to the people around you. So what I would say is that happiness and social connection are crucial to actually seeing our creative genius. And one more thing I want to touch on here is you mentioned when you were struggling during your two-year period of depression that at a certain point, you reached out to family and friends, told them about it and asked for help. How was that process and what would you say to anyone who's listening that is tempted to do something similar? There are a lot of people that are hurting for many different reasons and they have friends, they have family. How do they go about asking for help? That can be really difficult. It is really hard, um, especially when we've created a world where we oftentimes in social media are trying to win best life award with our pictures and the posts that we do. I think that it was an incredible process for me because it shifted everything I kind of thought. I thought up to that point, emotions are things I keep on the inside. I'll be positive on the outside for other people and be there for other people. But I didn't want to let people in. But then I also wasn't allowing them to be a friend in the first place. The reaction when I did this was uh, that there was two reactions. One reaction was a group of people that were stunned. They had no idea I was going through something negative or hard because I never put that face out there. The other group They knew I was depressed for two years, but I just would never talk about it with them or never admit to it. So they couldn't help me either in both of those cases. But what was fascinating was as soon as we moved away from a world where we felt like we couldn't show weakness or the negative, it made me so much stronger and more positive because now it gave other people license to talk about the positive as well, which I think goes in both directions. I think we also don't talk about the positive enough either. I think we're pretty neutral. You know, Uh, we did a study, we've done this cross industry now, 31% of individuals at organizations report being optimist, but not expressive of it at work, 
which means a third of the people that we work with that seem really, really neutral are actually closet optimists, that if we could activate them to become positive, if we gave them license to by changing our behavior and starting to talk more about praise and recognition or gratitude or sharing some of the positive things that are happening within our life, we give them license to be more optimistic as well. We just did this we literally got this data back two days ago. We've been working with this very large medical group in the Midwest, and they've had two massive rounds of restructuring and cost reductions, which is really hard for a community to go through. So we'd assume that their stress levels would skyrocket, optimism would drop, and they'd feel like the company's going in the wrong direction. But we did a two-day intervention where we taught them about positive psychology changes that they can make in, in their life. And we didn't do it like on your own, here's some gratitudes you can do. We did it as a community where they were actually coming up with ideas together that they were gonna practice these ideas. They did over a couple of weeks and it turns out that the number of people that are expressive of optim optimism at work in the very expressive category went from 23% to 40%, which is culture changing because now you're wow, getting a greater really amount of voice. Yeah, so what's amazing about this is that as soon as we start opening up and being real, I think that's the key. It's not just opening up about the negative, we got to open up about things that work for us. Like I changed the olive oil I drank or eat because uh, one of my friends talked about it and said it was healthier. I tried yoga because of that. I tried exercise and diet regimes because of friends. So if people aren't telling me that they're trying out gratitudes or that they're opening up to other people or that they're writing two minute positive emails a day and it's really working for them, it's the best part of their day, then I'm not picking up on those things as well. So we need to be more expressive of the positive and more real with what's going on within our lives to let people in. Not everyone. That's the other thing I think is so important to your question is I didn't let everyone in. I only let the people in that I valued their opinion and I felt could be positive to move me forward. I didn't let in people that might be competitive about that or to put me down because of it or to take advantage of me because of that. I only let the people in that would make me stronger on that. So what I was doing was surrounding myself with more positive influences, which was increasing the positive peer pressure in those moments without weakening me. That's such an important caveat, I think, because many people are tempted to share broadly. And I think that sharing strategically is, is really the way to go because if the person doesn't have context with you, if they don't love you, if they don't care about you, you can't expect great feedback or support. And you know, kind of switching gears here, I think your research is fascinating and you have a new book out called Big Potential, which is, I would, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's more about team building and getting together in a group to unlock potential as opposed to doing it on your own. So what was some of the most interesting research you came across that got you to write this book or that kept you going throughout the book writing process? Well, it, one one thing on that that past point you're making that I think is crucial too is if you think about it, I think we overshare on social media, right? Because yeah. we want to be more connected. And that's kind of what led to big potential as well. We want to be more connected. I think we shouldn't be sharing necessarily that we're going through depression with strangers, right? right. I think that this should be people that we're close to. So I think it goes to strategically sharing in those moments because what we're trying to create is a, a positive star system around you. Stars alone collapse in upon themselves. We're looking for a balanced star system around you with people that help you to grow and people help bridge you to new, new areas. So big potential actually came out the week that my daughter came out last week, uh, last year, um, last week and last year, actually. During the Super Bowl, my wife's water broke and we didn't know that was a thing because she wasn't supposed to be due for another two and a half months. Um, oh, wow. So she, it was during the super, she Ubered to the hospital. So husband of the year and, uh, <laughs> and she got there and they were like, yeah, your water broke. You need to keep the baby in for six weeks. So you can't move. And then three days later she gave birth to Zoe the same week, big potential came out. 
which is a problem for an author because for three years, you three to five years, you work on a book and do all this research. And there's like a 30 day window where you really try to get out there and do it. So that's what I was going to do and then get off the road. And Zoe was born the same week as this book. So she was in NICU for 50 days while I was on a, a book tour for 50 days. And we got to battle test this research because Zoe and my happiness was being cared for by people that were doing things I couldn't do for her. They were keeping her alive in this intensive care unit while I was out talking about interconnected happiness. The research actually began with those two studies I mentioned, the fact that hills change based upon the inclusion of others in our pursuit of happiness and success within this world, and the lightning bug story, which was the initial one that led to the Harvard study and to the uh, Google Project Aristotle, where we were finding that social connection was the greatest predictor of our long-term happiness. So it doesn't have to be necessarily a team that creates positive long-term change, but it has to be other people. So I get a lot of organizations that say, we're very serious. We work with millions of dollars. You know, we're, we're very tough. We can't sit around talking about gratitudes, holding hands and singing Kumbaya. So we went into a, a level one trauma hospital in Orlando at Orlando Health. And for two years, we got their teams during the staff meetings, these old grizzled veteran guys, uh, and men and women who had been jaded because they're doing life or death decisions about who lives based upon resource allocation to go through and each person in the room had to say one thing that they were grateful for to start this meeting every week when they did it. And they pushed back and it took so much social capital for us to be able to do this. They did it for two years and they had they were doing really important things. So when they came into the meeting, they had to already be ready with one thing that they're grateful for. The reason I'm telling you this story is we were testing resilience on the backside of this and performance of teams. And what we found is two years, almost the anniversary of this, the Pulse nightclub shooting occurred three blocks down from them, the second largest shooting in US history. And all of the victims came to the teams we had actually been working with for two years. And several hours after the most traumatic event of their community's existence, they started their morning with gratitudes again, thinking of the things they were grateful for and what they were grateful for so much so that they were in the staff meeting crying was because for two years, they realized they weren't just doing their work together. They weren't just doing resource allocation with the person sitting next to them. They were also hearing these points of human connection, these deeper points of the positive that might not have been expressed otherwise. And as a result of that, they had deep social connection with the team when they went through the most challenging things that they've gone through, which is why social connection is so important to our soldiers, for example, which is why the majority of attempted suicides for soldiers occur not on the combat, in the combat zones, it occurs once they get back home and they lose some of the social connection they had with the teams that were there. Social connection is the greatest predictor of our long-term happiness. Social connection, greatest predictor of our long-term success rates. Social connection is as predictive of how long we end up living as obesity, high blood pressure, or smoking. So the reason that this is important is that the whole book was, how do we wrap our pursuit of happiness and success around other people so that we're enhancing other people, we're expanding power out to them like I did when I was depressed, deputizing the people around me to have a positive effect upon me, defending the system against the negative and sustaining those gains by celebrating those positive. And that's how you get these group movements away from so much of the loneliness we feel. Honestly, the, the CDC, I went out and spoke to them, the Centers for Disease, Disease Control. I've been doing this work for more than a decade. When I spoke out at them two years ago, they said, we haven't changed the depression screening while you've been doing all this work, Sean. And the depression rates in the US have doubled. It's not like it's depressing being human. It's a lot harder to be non-depressed as a human 
now than it was 10 years ago. Something is changing. The hospitalization for suicide have doubled for every age group, including eight-year-olds during the past 10-year period of time. We're going in the wrong direction on happiness, and I think we can fix it when we stop hyper-competing and hyper-comparing and start actually creating positive behavioral changes that we do on a daily basis, but then do it with our families. Around the dinner table, not only do we do gratitudes, but this is one of the biggest, the most practical ideas out of Big Potential is we now have a glass jar we keep in our kitchen and as a gratitude jar, and we'll write down good things that happen on scrap sheets of paper, fold it up and put it into this glass jar and it fills up. And when it fills up, we go back and read through it. And what we realized was 80 to 90% of the things we wrote down, we'd forgotten about. You get so focused on the stresses or threats of the day that you forget about 80 to 90% of the blessings in your life. So you get a triple benefit. You get the initial positive, you get the positive when you wrote down the gratitude uh, and put it into the jar, but then you get a family, a communal narrative that comes out of these stories, seeing how you have so many things to be grateful for that shifts our mindset and helps us to be not focused just on the negative, but actually see the positive in the midst of the challenge. That's really exciting as well. I think social connection is something that is being eroded. And one of your quotes from, I think it was your uh, first book, is that studies have found that American teenagers are two and a half times more likely to experience elevated enjoyment when engaged in a hobby than when watching TV and three times more likely when playing a sport. So in a day and age where there are many new forms of media that I would say are engineered to be incredibly addictive, where hyper competitiveness and where comparing yourself is how you're supposed to use these tools and how you're supposed to use this media. That's really problematic. Uh, what do you say for all the parents out there and the people who maybe feel sick, you know, encountering this media or using this media? How, how do we escape that? And how do we get off the couch, get away from our phones and build the, the social connection? So I, I think there's a couple answers to that. And I think it's one of the most important questions we have right now. One is it's about, it's about what we're letting in too, right? The, sure. Oftentimes, I, you know, I get alerts on my watch and my phone until I just recently shut them off. And it was all the negative. Like, don't tell me about the good. The good's already good. Tell me about the negative. I would get alerts about negative things that are going on in the world. So I might be having a great day. And then suddenly my brain realizes there's a threat somewhere to somebody. And then I feel like I'm under threat. So I think that's part of the reason over the past decade we've seen such a shift is our brains are being saturated by threats and negative that are going on in the world on a continual basis that when our brain is threatened, it steals resources from the part of the brain that processes the positive. My wife is a happiness researcher now, but she was on, uh, she was a network news anchor at CBS in New York. And she felt like she was telling negative stories on the news over and over again. And she realized I didn't want a kid walking through the room while I was doing my work because they would hear all these negative things that are going on in the world. So she went back to study positive psychology at UPenn, not to study how we ignore the negative, but how do you talk about the negative in a way that empowers people instead of leaving them paralyzed? So I think it's about what we let in. So it's not only having positive friends, but it's having positive influences that are coming in. Like I've shifted so much of what I was doing looking at the news to listening to really beneficial podcasts or listening to audiobooks that are really positive. I do them on repeat, actually. I've listened to some of these eight or nine times, these books, because they put me into a positive space where when I go back to see the negative in the world, I'm more prepared for it. I think there's two practical things people could be doing in, the, in this technological age to have a real impact. One of them is I created a mental moat around my day. The weakest parts of the day, this is one of the, the parts of big potential called uh, defend, because if we're going to be hyper 
interconnected, we need to also defend against the negative in that system. So what I do is, first of all, I found out the weakest times of the day in terms of your brain's resources are the first 30 minutes of the day and the last 30 minutes. That's Mm -hmm. where you're either the most tired or your brain hasn't started up enough. But that's when I oftentimes would turn on the news or open up my inbox or check social media. And that's when my brain is weakest against those negative impacts. So I still check the news. I still look at social media, but I don't do it during the first 30 minutes or the last 30 minutes of the day. That defensive mode around my day helps me look at the negative, but in a more powerful or strengthened position. The other thing is, and we've been doing this a lot with the schools and you're mentioning the parents, what I would suggest for them is talking to their kids about a shift in social media. It's not going to work to say, get off of social media because it's, it's too embedded with our lives currently. It might change, but it's, it's too embedded right now. What we've been doing with the students is I found this myself is when I'd go on social media, it would almost always backfire. 95% of the time I'd leave feeling diminished. You know, occasionally I'd do a post and people liked it, but usually I'd put up a picture or I'd think really hard about a really smart idea I thought that I could put out there. So hopefully people would think I'm smart and like two or three people would like it. And one of them was my mom. I'm like, well, I guess I'm not that smart or I guess that trip wasn't as meaningful. Or I guess my kid isn't that cute. And occasionally something good would happen. So I keep going back and hitting my head against the wall against it. Or I'd have some good sales on books or like a, a lot of views on, on a video. And then I'd find a cat video that has 60 million views or one of my like peers who's doing much better than me on all of those things. And it would always make me feel bad. Comparisons, the thief of joy. So we have to avoid that in social media. So what we did with the students is we got them instead of during those 15 minutes on social media, going through and hoping to feel really loved, which always backfired. We intentionally go in, you spend the same amount of time, but your first task is to like everyone's post and comment about how great their vacation was or congratulate them on the job that they just did or tell them about how meaningful they've been to your life. And then if you have like a few more minutes, maybe you post a picture of yourself. What we find is when people leave social media, they feel rejuvenated, their energy levels are higher, their happiness levels are higher, but most importantly, their social connection score rises. And that's the greatest predictor of their long-term happiness. And those people now want to have more positive interactions with them. So they start posting positive things about them, which is not the point of it. But the point of it was that we were able to move away from this idea that happiness is a zero-sum game. That is great advice. And it's a great place to transition over to our lightning round where we go through a series of rapid fire questions and get your take on all these questions. So are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Sean, what's the best book you've read in the last year? Hmm. Wow, I've read so many. And sorry, this is not a lightning round. This suddenly got snail slow. <laughs> I, I, my favorite author is C.S. Lewis, and I've been reading a, a collection of his writings, these sermons, and they're phenomenal. Talk about people going off to World War II uh, and talk about whether or not it's important to still study English and history when big events are occurring in the world and he's giving value to those things. I loved it. So anything by C.S. Lewis is on the, the nonfiction side. I, I, it's my go-to. Cool. Have you read his science fiction trilogy by any chance? No, I haven't yet. I, he's my favorite author and I haven't even read those yet. So I really need to. I just did. And it's, uh, it's fascinating to say the least. There's uh, one of my favorite authors is Leo Strauss, who had this idea that many of the greatest minds hid I- big ideas in fiction uh, as it was the only safe place during the period in time in which they were writing. And you can't walk away from C.S. Lewis's fiction without suspecting that he might've been up to something. So, all right, next, uh, next question here. What app on your phone is currently increasing your social connectedness? Gosh, I've, I've been trying to move away from using my phone a lot for social connectedness because I felt like I was doing way too much of it. So I've been trying to do more in person with people. Um, I oh, still use Twitter. Go. 
I still use oh, cool. uh, Twitter a lot just to find out what people are experiencing in the world and get a pulse on it. But I have to get off pretty quick because of the outrage on it as well. So, but I've been trying to do more in, in person with people. But one of the ones I love is uh, Work Human has uh, an app that they created that is basically a gratitude app for other people. You express praise and recognition to other people. They found that if they got people to get just three touch points of praise over the course of the year, retention rates rose to 94% at LinkedIn when people felt praised by their own peers. So it has a big impact, same pay, same building, but huge impact upon the way we see the world. So cool. And what's the best conversation you've had maybe in the last week or month in your own personal life where you feel like that was a breakthrough? Um, I've loved this conversation, to be honest. Um, I never get oh, thank you. most of these questions to, to be serious. Like people just go to the, to the obvious ones and you ask really great questions. I've been having some really good conversations with my wife about what's enough. So a lot of my happiness advantage work is about the idea that success doesn't lead to greater levels of happiness. We think it will, but it doesn't. The causation doesn't flow that way. And if it did, celebrities and rich, rich people would be the happiest people in the world and they're not. But I think that there's a continual balance game. Like, am I spending enough time with my son? Am I writing enough? Am I researching enough? Am I doing enough podcasts? Am, am I seeing enough people in person? Am I talking to enough people? And I think being able to come up with a clear idea of what is enough for you in the present moment, it'll change over time. But having that boundary is helpful because honestly, being a parent is an infinite demand on finite time. Being an author or an entrepreneur, infinite demand on finite amount of time. So if we don't have those safeguards of, of a idea of enough in place, it doesn't work for very long, which is, goes to the psychological idea of, of satisfiers. Oh, it's satisfiers versus... Um, uh, maximizers. When we try to maximize everything in our life, our happiness levels drop dramatically. If we're satisfied, but one, we want to keep growing, but we're okay with the amount of work that we've done. We feel that positivity actually fuels later success, but also makes you feel grateful in the present. Wise words. Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. And for everyone who's listening, is there anything you would leave everyone with? Happiness is not an individual sport. All this research I do comes down to three ideas, which is that happiness is contagious. Happiness can be a choice if you change your behavior and happiness is an advantage. But really all my books come down to one idea, which is the change is possible. You don't have to just be your genes, your environment or your past. Small positive changes can create not only changes to your life, but ripple into entire communities around you, helping us to make this a better world for all the people that maybe never listen to these words right now. I love it. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and we will see you next time. Mission.org is a media company with a daily newsletter, network of podcasts, and brand studio designed to accelerate learning. Head to mission.org to get award-winning podcasts like The Mission Daily, The Story, IT Visionaries, Education Trends, Marketing Trends, Future of Cities, and more. Mission Studios has worked with companies like Salesforce, Twilio, and Katera to create custom media channels that drive results. Make sure to subscribe to the Mission's daily newsletter at mission.org. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. 
It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.